Welcome back to the Leaders of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Ling Ling. I'm currently in the process of putting together season three. We have an exciting line of experts, academics, and entrepreneurs talking about a wide range of topics from the future of Asia, diversity, education technology, social media, well, just to name a few. While we get season three up and running, in this episode, I thought I'd share with you the best nuggets from our previous seasons. Enjoy the show! In 2017, I decided to leave the corporate life and become an entrepreneur. After many years of global learning and development experiences, I wanted to help organizations to foster a learning culture and improve employee engagement. However, I discovered that many organizations had a fixed mindset, which is that learning can only happen in the traditional classroom. Determined to show that learning can happen at any time and anywhere, I started the Leaders of Learning podcast show. It was my way to help organizations learn. It took me about three to four months to learn about podcasting and to produce about six to eight episodes. It was a steep learning curve, yet I was super excited to embark on this podcasting journey. When it comes to guest selection, I initially started with a few good friends from my network and slowly branched out to friends of friends. The topics were greatly varied. Well, because beggars can't be choosers, right? But generally, the topics come in three broad topics of facilitation methods, technology, as well as soft skills. In this episode, I'll share my favorite nuggets from these three categories. The season started off with a hot topic on generational differences. At that time, almost everyone I spoke to had an opinion about each generation. The millennials were entitled, the boomers were rigid, the Xers wanted things done their way, and the list goes on. No matter which generation the person comes from, there is a common need. And the need is to learn. So I spoke to my dear friend Raymond Thomas, who is experienced in engaging learners across the generations in his training courses. He was willing to be my guinea pig for the podcast experiment in 2017, for which I'm forever grateful for. Well, that's what friends are for, right? Here is what he has to say about managing an intergenerational classroom. Um, I always believe that, you know, I want to be um, if I want to be effective in the classroom, I have to be ahead of the classroom uh, in, in, the, in the technologies that I want to use. So I, I cannot be apprehensive, right? So I, I must be flexible enough to learn new things and to try new things. So that's another thing. Uh, it's like, do we have the courage? You know, a lot of facilitators and trainers kind of like are afraid that they come in, they may try to do something and the class is not forgiving and, and they get penalized at the end of the day in terms of your ratings and stuff like that. So from a, from a trainer perspective, I mean, my advice would be, uh, be keep an open mind, be flexible, be willing to adapt, uh, be willing to learn uh, what your, uh, your, your participants need. 
right? I, I think these are all going to be really, really valuable fundamental stuff that if you can do that, I think you would be able to rock the cards. In the same vein, there are different methods to facilitate learning for your learners. It does not have to be a traditional classroom where the teacher imparts all knowledge and remains the beacon of expertise. Rather, the method of learning circles facilitates learning within a community and supports sharing of knowledge and experiences with each member. Prashant Jain, or PJ for short, is the CEO of WizTango as well as the chief architect of learning circles in Singapore. He shares his views on learning circles here with us on the podcast. Right, so learning circles, the idea from a learner's perspective is that from a, in a traditional setting in training, you would be more passively uh, consuming the training session or the content from a training. In a learning circle, it would be flipped where uh, it's uh, digitally facilitated and so you are participating. So it's a, we call it a unique participatory experience where the learners are uh, participating in the learning experience. So, and there are a lot of uh, learning methodologies now that are being adopted to create a learning circle. And uh, it happens both on-site uh, as well as online. So the idea is O2O, which I just heard about a couple of days ago, offline to online. So one of the, one of the uh, facets of learning circle is how to help um, people to adopt digital learning, uh, which may happen you know, uh, at their own pace. Uh, today, e-learning has been there, but uh, people find it very, it's a, you know, highly resisting. Resistance is very high for, for uh, using e-learning. So how do we make it more fun, uh, where you can do it together, do it yourself, that kind of concept uh, around the world. Although in many parts of the world, the traditional classroom method is still seen as the holy grail of education, in which case the burden of imparting knowledge falls upon the educator. But when it comes to imparting knowledge, how effective is it? We have invited Mei Lin Tan, Head of Academic Development for the Singapore Institute of Management, and here she shares her views on effective knowledge transfer. There is a lot of expectation, students being versatile, uh, to be able to adapt to uh, different situations. So no longer is the context static. Whatever uh, content or skill that relevant today, it may be challenging uh, for the students to navigate in the future. They keep, it, it keeps evolving. So students must have the ability to to learn new skills and not stay with a static mode of, of content. So if experts would want to prepare students uh, to transfer their knowledge to students so that students in turn can be ready for the workforce, uh, perhaps they can think about how they themselves uh, would navigate in the rapidly changing world and how they actually learn to update their own skills because their way of learning would be very valuable for students. So if they can uh, also share how they learn to the students and students can acquire the learning skills. So it's not just about content, but also learning how to learn a new stuff or new skills. 
that will be something that will be very valuable for the students. From these conversations, I've realized that the most important skill for an educator, facilitator, or even a learner is the ability to unlearn skills, beliefs, mindsets that were taught to us in the past may no longer be applicable in today's fast-paced globalized world. If we're so hung on to our past learnings, not only will it harm our chances to grow and progress in our career and life, it may also endanger the lives of others. We have invited Faiza Abduhamid, head of the Singapore Red Cross Academy, to share her views in the importance of unlearning. As educators or as trainers, we must always take a approach of knowledge will not end. There's always new things to learn. In order to absorb new things, you must unlearn old things. I think uh, most of the time our brain works like a sponge. Uh, when the sponge is full, because you refuse to unlearn, very little information or very little water can actually seep through again. But if you want to absorb and soak more water, you need to throw away the previous water, the old water. So you need to un- unlearn certain things. And you need to integrate, I think, and one of the key things that you need to integrate what you have learned before with all the new things you have learned now so that you can actually uh, compare the knowledge that you've learned and, and, and be flexible about it. You take which one, whichever is applicable at whichever situation you're in. Uh, I also would like to quote my favourite quote, which is, the true purpose of education is actually to replace an empty mind with an open one. It's not to replace an empty mind with a full one, but with an open one. An open mind means that you must be always be open to changes, open to new ideas, open to new concepts, open to change your perception and attitude, and again, be flexible. In our globalized world, it is inevitable that we will interact with people from different cultures. Even our classroom has become more and more diverse than it was before. Even if it's not a classroom of mixed ethnicity, it might be a classroom of mixed industries, generations, gender, religion, abilities, or even sexual orientation. As educators, trainers, or facilitators, how can we manage and engage such a diverse classroom? We speak to David Livermore, president of the Cultural Intelligence Center based in Michigan, USA. If at all possible, I like to have a a cultural broker or coach um, who knows the culture I'm coming from and knows the culture that I'm addressing, who can just give me some prep on the front end of here's ways that they might perceive you coming in, here's some things you may want to avoid, and better yet, if they're going to be someone who's going to actually be present there where they, I was joking with you about, can you go with me and send me texts, but quite literally Mm -hmm. to say, can they be someone that will give me unfiltered feedback, you know, especially if it's a multiple engagement and there's a break and walk up to them and is this working? What do I need to address? So to, to speak of a specific example, I uh, had a series of speaking engagements over about a, a three-day period with a large company in Japan a couple of years ago. And I knew um, that my rate of speech was going to be an issue. Um, they, the audience, I was told, were English speakers, but um, certainly not native English. So they needed mm-hmm. me to slow down and wanted me to you know, speak more concretely. So part of how I prepared, I don't very often do this anymore, but I did actually write a full manuscript of the presentation. 
I practiced it out loud just to kind of get a sense of the the cadence and I tried as much as possible to you know get rid of idioms and jargon and that and then I had talked with this coach that I had and said to them hey that I mean part of the way that I prepared was based upon their feedback but then knowing they were going to be there I said hey, I'm going to be checking with you at the breaks. Just be super blunt with me. And I felt like she would because we had already established that kind of relationship. So I started and I had, you know, written right across the top of my notes, keep it slow and felt like, okay, if anything, I might be really insulting these people because I'm going so slowly. But, you know, felt like I, I need to try this. Check with her at the break. And she's like, ah, oh, yeah, it's it's good. It's just it's still fast. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, too fast. Slow down. I'm like, okay. So next time I slow down a little bit more, come to her at the lunch break. She's like, yeah, maybe just take a breath between every sentence. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So um, by the end of the the three days, she, maybe she was just being nice to me. She's like, hey, I think you found a more Japanese friendly cadence to speaking, but it was amazing to me, even though I teach about this stuff and, you know, have certainly done a lot of speaking to different audiences of just how hard of work that it was. There were a number of episodes related to technology that supports the learner and the organization. We looked into videos, game-based learning, and AI for this season, all of which are obituous, fun, and exciting. I first spoke to Safira Idayu, a film director for various types of videos, and picked her brains about learning through video. The, you know, teachers don't really have to be disheartened about it. They're not going to go out of jobs or anything like that. They literally will take it to another level. If there are still students who appreciate traditional learning, there, are, there will be a number of students that will still go to school. But there will also be teachers who would appreciate, yeah, you know what, it's easy for me to be sitting in my room with just a plain background explaining to students on maybe how to learn Japanese, Mm -hmm. you know, the language itself. So it really depends on the preference of people. Some people love the traditional way. Uh, I'm a bit of a both. I love traditional things. So I still love going to a Japanese school to learn things. I don't like learning Japanese language online, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then, but what I love learning online is not um, how to edit the video and make them look like this. Mm-hmm. That, that is something I love to learn online, mm-hmm. but not in school. Oh. It's a very different notion to it. So that's how I think it's going to evolve. You know? But I think a lot of more things that's going to go you know, online nowadays because it's just easy, accessible. And you know what? This is one thing teachers can look at. If they really decide to go online, they're going to get a lot more money because, you know what, they really have to just sit down and choose students and literally make students come to them. They can literally teach students anywhere at point of time. They can literally save money on transport from going to schools. All they could do is making sure these kids are paying and they just need to teach. And all they have to do is just have a laptop. I was brought up in a generation where everyone started playing games. My favorite games were Super Mario, Tetris, and eventually went on to Diablo, Majesty, Civilization, and even World of Warcraft. From the early days of gaming, a few forward-thinking entrepreneurs took gaming to the learning space with the mission to make learning fun. For season one, we spoke to Siddharth Jain. 
He is the creative director of Playware Studios. Here is his take on game-based learning. In my experience, uh, I've been doing this for quite a few years now, in my experience what I've seen is a lot of organizations are not very practice-focused when it comes to their transfer of learning. Most organizations are guilty of this, basically uh, more or less uh, knowledge-focused. So you have some PowerPoint or you have some process sheet uh, that you've prepared and then you just leave your people to learn on the job. So you just say, okay, you call it OJT or whatever. And what you do is you throw them in the deep end and uh, if they make a mistake, there may or may not be a mentor or a manager to give feedback to them. Other than that, there is no real learning and what you, you expect is that, okay, over the years somebody would learn. Now this used to work extremely well in kind of assembly line type situations where you know there was a tight working community, the tasks were fairly physical, right? In today's workspaces where a lot of the cha challenges that somebody gets in their workspace have to do with thinking, uh, have to do with cognition, this becomes a problem. This actually becomes very, very dangerous and actually it's one of those things that end up, you know, organizations can end up losing a lot of money on. When we start talking about, with any organization to, you know, we start talking about building games for learning for them, the first thing that we try to ask them is, can you recognize your enterprise practice? What is your enterprise practice? What does, you know, an individual, individual person who's part of your team, what do they do in their everyday day? So this job that you're trying to train somebody for, what does it entail? Now, some organizations such as uh, hospitals, or hotels, or airlines have very easy, so they know what their frontline staff does. But other organizations, corporates, have uh, you know, a very tough time trying to figure this out. So that starts you know, the first conversation. So the first part of the conversation is, do you recognize what your enterprise practices? Do you know how that can be transferred? How do you currently do that? Now, if you have some sort of training that you already do around the practice of your work, Making that into a game is, is a piece of cake, right? But very often we have to develop not just the game, but the actual training curriculum around the transfer of that particular type of practice, which usually takes a little bit more time. We are entering into the world of artificial intelligence, or AI, where machines can learn from us human beings. When machines are able to take on mundane and eventually intelligent tasks, they may replace us and we may subsequently lose our jobs. But are we so sure that this will happen? J.C. Sakar, CEO and co-founder of AcquiZen, speaks to us about artificial intelligence. Let me give you an analogy for machine learning. So let's take uh, an example of, let's say, a barista. You go to the bar every day and, uh, you know, the barista, the minute he sees you, he recognizes that, okay, hey, Ling is coming into the bar and Ling likes, this is the way she likes a drink. So he knows how to mix the drink for you. So basically what it's doing is it's nothing but, you know, the fact that you went there continuously every week and then that pattern was formed, know that, you know, this is Link's favorite drink and I've got to mix this drink. So it's really predicting saying that this is what Link does. So when Link comes, I don't have to wait for her to tell me what she needs because I know this is the kind of drink she likes. So that's what, when it's done to machines, when it's done with machines, that's what is machine learning. It's really about pattern recognition and then determining that if 
so-and-so is doing this, then that means when, I, when he comes the next time, I've got to do this. So that's in very, very simple terms what machine learning is all about. It's really not the frontiers of technology, if you will. I mean, it's been around for many, many years. It gets a little more complex when it goes to deep learning. And when it's when you say deep learning, it's all about, again, looking at the data sources. So it's not just Ling coming into the bar today, but it's also about knowing what kind of a day Ling had today. So today, Ling had a great day at work. And therefore, she probably, and she won a, a big business deal. And she'd like to celebrate today. And therefore, I'm going to offer her champagne today. Because that's what she's going to go for. So it's about forming those connections based on others data sources thereby coming to a conclusion that it's not just about it's not just about looking at a person and saying this is what this person needs but it's also looking at the person looking at other interactions the person may have had looking at situations around you and then coming to a conclusion one of mankind's greatest abilities is the ability to adapt and learn if we continuously harness our abilities we will be able to overcome life's adversities, gain the necessary skills to survive in changing times, and move towards our goals. However, we first need to look within ourselves, reflect, and assess if we have the right skills to achieve our goals. For season one, we spoke to a psychologist, an entrepreneur, an expert in their field. One of the most powerful skills we take for granted is our conversational abilities. With powerful conversations, we will be able to influence, persuade, and transform the people and relationships in our lives. Don Rapley, CEO and co-founder of Transform Your Conversations, shares his view about powerful conversations. What I see very often is that People don't listen. I think uh, people are very often um, willing to go into a conversation. They've got something to say. And when the conversation starts, they're not really focusing. They're not really tuning into what the other person is saying. And they're waiting for the opportunity for the other person to stop talking and for them to chip in. And when I'm in conversations with people like that, I can spot that straight away. I know when we're starting to create a connection. The third mistake I see very often when I'm in conversations with people is talking too much. Um, I think it's uh, really important that you allow your partner to explore their own ideas. And they can only really explore their own ideas by thinking it through. And if you're receptive, if you're focused, if you're really intent on helping them to tell their side of the story, uh, it's a really powerful, it's a really powerful thing. And people often make the mistake that they don't allow somebody to, uh, to, to explore their own thoughts. The other mistake I see is when people interrupt in a conversation. It's very easy to do that. Sometimes people are losing track in a conversation. But when you interrupt somebody's train of thought, you're showing them that your train of thought is more important. It shows them that uh, that you're trying to take control of the conversation. So I think that's a, a mistake people commonly make. With meaningful and transformational conversations, it is only natural that our networks and relationships become rich and deep. But did you know having great relationships is a form of capital. If we put enough time and effort into our relationships, 
we may greatly reap rewards from them. Annie Yahya, founder of Vital Voices Asia and co-founder of Coach Work Asia, shares her views about building relationship capital. What I've learned is that people are really, really very helpful. If they want to help you, they will help you. And if they, you know, just write out and say, you know, I don't want to help you, that's fine. Then you know that you've got some work to do with this person. You still got to build a little bit more capital, you know. You got to still um, work on that relationship if that person is important enough for you. But I say just go ask for it. Just go ask. People will naturally want to help. What is that situation that you're in? Find that right person who can, you know, if that, that person that you know, if only you have one person who you know who can help you, ask that person to recommend someone who is within that person's network. Many of us dream to escape the dull routine of work and become our own boss. Some of us dread the long commute, the nasty office politics, and managing bad bosses, colleagues, and clients. The idea of becoming your own boss might sound mightily enticing. Building and managing your own business has its challenges. So what does it take to become a boss? Entrepreneur and storyteller Goh Ayat shares her decades of experiences in entrepreneurship. I think uh, if I have to say this, huh, I think number one, I think you need to understand the why you start a business. The basic motivation of why, because like I said earlier, it can be a lonely process. And in doing so, sometimes uh, you may not get the support that you need. And so you must be able to stand there and say, you know, the reason why I started this is because I, I want to add value to this. I have a belief in this. So you need to go back and understand your motivation at moments when you feel you're down. So I think you need to remember that. So I would recommend, for me, I would recommend that you write down your, your why statement, so to say, the why I want to do this. And then put it in a poster size in your room and you look at it and reflect on it every day. I think the other thing is, of course, uh, constantly observe and listen to your consumers. When they complain, I always think that they're giving you feedback. Listen to them. Be observant with regard to the competing landscapes that's out there. But if you've got a great business, there are many competitors who also come into your space. Just be very clear what is their value proposition and then look at how you can always be ahead of them. Suppliers have actually a good understanding. I mean, if you are selling products and services, has also a very good understanding of what the market landscape is as well. So it's, it is good that you spend maybe once a month, you know, uh, touch base with them, listening to what they say. And uh, if you have staff uh, who is actually interacting with um, the daily activities of the business, their feedback is also very important. Probably uh, one more advice is have a buddy, have a mentor that you can spend. You know, sometimes it's just about, for me, when I first started, I always... I felt at that point of time when I was when things were not going well and when I go and talk to my mentor or to buddies who are entrepreneurs and they says, Ah oh, yeah, this is the process of uh, becoming an entrepreneur. Oh, oh is it? <laughs> so no, it was it's not as bad as I thought it was. At least you don't feel like you're going through this alone when you know someone else is going through the same pains. 
That's right. And, and because they've gone through it and then you look at how they become successful, then you tell yourself, yeah, probably this is a process. I have. And it makes me wiser, better, smarter. And hopefully, you know, as you tweet and meet your market space, you offer better value to your customers. Yeah, and having a buddy and having a mentor is also excellent as a sounding board. So when either one of you, you know, succeed in something, there's someone to celebrate with. That's true. (laughs) The final episode of season one had the largest number of unique downloads. In this episode, we spoke to qualified psychologist and sexologist Oberdan Marianetti, who shared an issue we all face finding balance. This balance is the balance between what you want in life and what others expect from you. For example, you want to be an entrepreneur, but your family expects the financial stability from your day job. Another example could be that you possess a certain sexual orientation or hold a certain belief in which your family and society condemns. How do you reconcile your inner need and find balance between your desires and meeting the expectations of your loved ones and society? Let's hear what Obudan has to say. The one ingredient that I imagine with no certainty, but I imagine being key to any form of reconnecting to self is that of working on our ability to be mindful, our presence, our, our, our awareness of self and of what's around us at any one moment of time. The second thing is a pattern that I recognize in, in my work where people who come in search of their purpose very, very often, if not even always, begin their dialogue with me by asking me, I'm not too sure what to do next. And a lot of the work we then do together is to shift that perspective from what do I do next to who do I want to be next? Because you see, purpose is not defined by what you do, it's the other way around. What you do is likely to change with time because we evolve, we learn new things, new opportunities show at the, show up at the door. And therefore, even if we're embarking in this thing that we think it's finally our purpose, we might find at some point in our life that it is no longer, or perhaps it has finished serving the purpose that we expected. But what remains true is who we are in that activity, in that job. And therefore, learning to understand who you want to be rather than what you want to do could be another way of becoming closer to yourself, to your needs, to your understanding of your being, to your talents, and so on and so forth. Hope you enjoyed this episode called the best of season one do check out the episode that intrigues you most our show can be found on itunes spotify stitcher google podcast Castbox, overcast almost everywhere till the next time continue to learn and grow in awesomeness i'm your host ling ling and this is the leaders of learning podcast